0: The following program is brought to you by TasteBud Entertainment. Welcome to an hour of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and wine with Chef Jamie Gwen starts now. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Every Sunday, I share scrumptious information on all things food with grand guests that will elevate your culinary knowledge, tasty travel tips, wine conversation that I hope will inspire you, all to feed your soul. So don't touch your dial because I'll give you something to chew on. I'm always serving up seconds, of course, at chefjamie.com and on Facebook and Twitter at Gwen. And since we're deep into the heat of summer, I thought we'd kick off today's show with some cool ideas and chef's tips for making summer last forever. So whether you grill it or steam it or eat it on the cob, you definitely don't want to miss out on the sweet summer crop of corn, Right. Nothing says summer to me quite like corn on the cob. Maybe, I think, because we savor it during the summer, and of course, because it's the sweetest. Now, scientists believe that the people of central Mexico developed corn from a wild grass- over 7,000 years ago, and it's also known as maize. It eventually spread north to the southwestern U.S. and south to Peru, and Columbus acquired corn from the Indians in America and brought it back to Spain. From there, it spread to Western Europe and in time to the rest of the world, and now... Corn is produced on every continent, interestingly enough, except for Antarctica. And what food is more synonymous with summer than freshly picked corn on the cob? As we all know, corn grows in ears, each of which is covered in rows of kernels that are protected by the silk like threads that are called corn silk and then encased in a husk, right? It comes in a host of different varieties today, heirloom corn, as they call it, including the red, the pink. The black, even purple and blue. And just for fun, before you bite into that cob at your next barbecue, did you know that the average ear has 800 kernels arranged in 16 rows with one strand of silk for each kernel? Okay, so you heard it here first. There are so many alternatives, though, to eating corn straight from the cob. So let me start with the freshly made creamed corn that I think really can't get any better. You throw some fresh corn kernels into a pan with good quality unsalted butter. And after a little while, you have a little bit of char. The corn cooks through but is still toothsome, still al dente, right? A little bit of chew. You add a little bit of cream. You season generously with salt and freshly ground white pepper and maybe a pinch of cayenne if you like. You heat, you eat, and it's oh so good. Now, here's my best chef's tip. To easily take the kernels off of a cob, I like to stand the corn on the cob upright in a bowl and use a paring knife to cut down along the kernels as close to the cob as you can. The bowl captures the corn kernels themselves. Or you can line a cutting board with a kitchen towel and cut the kernels off. This is a restaurant trick, in fact. And the towel acts as a buffer to keep the corn kernels from flying around. Now, another great chef's tip for complete yield, after you've removed the kernels, you want to use the back of your chef knife, not the blade side, to scrape the corn cobs of the corn milk, as it's called. It's that milky liquid that you can extract from the cobs, and it's a great addition to corn soup and chowder. I have some chef friends in their restaurants that actually boil the cobs in the soup or in a stock for added flavor. So now that you have kernels, what should you make? Well... How about a corn and avocado salsa for grilled salmon or a tomato and corn salsa for dipping chips into scallops, shrimp, even crab or lobster. They pair very well with corn too for summer salads or even for a clam bake. And I love a corn soup, hot or cold as a starter, or even alongside an arugula salad, let's say as a meatless Monday vegetarian dish. Now, coconut is a crazy great flavor complement to corn as well. So be inspired and make a corn and coconut milk soup and serve it in demitasse cups, the small espresso cups for a cocktail party. You will guaranteed be a culinary hero. I love grilling corn as well. My secret to grilling corn is to clean the corn of its husk and silk and then make a really Flavor inspired mayonnaise mixture, whether you add your favorite chili powder or in the Japanese style togarashi or your favorite seasonings to the mayonnaise itself and then spread a thin layer on the corn cobs themselves. And you will lock in moisture and create this delicious coating that might make the best corn you've ever tasted. Now, you can also grill corn in the husk. And it's easy and it's tasty. And I think it gives you a really neat sort of built-in handle when you fold back the husk to reveal the steamed corn within. So corn on the cob, whether it be cleaned and thrown right on the grill or in the husk, Cooks both ways on the barbecue very well, but I like the flavor of the mayonnaise mixture or even a flavored butter. So before I grill the corn, I'll peel back the husk and remove the silk so that you don't have any of the silk threads to worry about when you're ready to eat. Then I'll put the husks back over the corn on the cob and I'll grill directly on the grate so that the corn husks get sort of charred and dark and the corn itself steams within. Now, when you're ready to serve it, I peel the husks back again and I add some flavored butter in there. Maybe it's a compound butter, could be a basil butter or pesto butter. Your favorite flavor profile. And then of course, salt and pepper, and then serve the corn with the husks pulled back. And it eliminates the need to roll the cobs in butter after you've grilled them. And the flavor is sensational. Now I have a delicious recipe that I've posted at chefjamie.com to savor the bounty of corn. I think that corn cakes capture the essence of summer. I love the fact that you can use these corn cakes as a side dish alongside, let's say, ribs and slaw for a summer dinner under the stars, or you can go the fanciful route and top them with a little bit of smoked salmon and creme fraiche and serve them as an hors d'oeuvre or as a starter. The recipe itself starts with yellow cornmeal, but you process the cornmeal in the food processor until it resembles corn flour, and you get this wonderful consistency. Very simply, a little bit of cayenne pepper and... Fire-roasted green chilies with whole milk and honey and eggs makes a corn cake that is out of this world. So check it out, www.chefjamie.com. It's a recipe you won't want to miss. Now, when it comes to summer, I definitely think of corn. But I think that the world is your oyster too. And so my feature to Think Like a Chef this week is all about Oysters 101. It's my goal to make you a better cook in your own kitchen, to make your dishes shine and come alive with flavor. So consider that the Think Like a Chef feature on the website will make you a better cook, right? Now, When it comes to oysters, it might be the ocean's tastiest bivalve. You can roast them or bake them or fry them or even broil them. I like to slurp them fresh from the sea at their peak freshness. But I've given you some tips on how to buy oysters. Of course, they have to have closed Shells and like all seafood and fish and shellfish for that matter, under the same category, no foul odor. They should be fresh and smell like the sea. And you always want to buy oysters from certified waters and ask your fishmonger to let you see the shellfish tags, of course. Now, oysters really no longer have a season because cultivation methods have changed, but there certainly are different sizes and flavor profiles that you can look for when it comes to buying oysters. I've given you all the tips you need to learn how to shuck like a pro and all the best pairings. Like I love a West Coast oyster called Kumamoto with a glass of bubbly, or I like the East Coast blue points and the bellins with a pale ale or a stout. Everything you need to know on how to taste oysters, they're Brininess, their salinity, and even their sweetness posted on the website so that you too can learn more. There are a few other things you won't want to miss at chefjamie.com a quinoa flour roasted cauliflower steak with tomato sauce. You'll hear all about it coming up next because we're making our own homemade flours at home. I've also posted one of my favorite. Super simple two-ingredient ice cream recipes for summer. It's a Nutella ice cream. Just Nutella, evaporated milk, and your ice cream maker, and you'll be in like Flynn. And then one of my favorite cocktails as well. It's everything you love about the ice cream confection from your childhood. It's a creamsicle martini. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, of course. And then I have to ask... Have you been to a Smart & Final store lately? Because their stores are better than ever. At Smart & Final, they offer everything your supermarket does in terms of fresh produce, a grand wine selection, dairy, beautiful meats, everything from a club store with sizes large and small, and there's no membership required to reap the benefits of their low prices. So here in Southern California, all of the Smart & Final stores offer exclusive brands, just like national brands that they guarantee or your money back. I love the new Smart and Final Extra stores where the aisles are big enough to get a couple of shopping carts through without hurting anybody, and the cashiers are quick. But above all, it's the quality and the value that I look for. So for all of your summer celebrations and your weekly shopping needs, check it out. Let me know what you think of the all-new and better-than-ever Smart and Final, and be sure to check out their specials this week, First Street Boneless Skinless Chicken breasts at $1.99 per pound, and Fresh... Hass avocados at 69 cents each. That is a great value. Stay tuned. We're going to make you hungry for more. Coming up next, Erin Alderson is teaching us to make homemade flowers at home, and all you need is your food processor. It's so easy. Plus, she is the author and Time Magazine editor, Waxing Poetic on Moonshine. Jamie Joyce will join us. Plus, we're going back to butter. Oh, I'm so glad. With recipes from our ancestors, Molly Chester will be in your radio. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen sharing this Sunday with you as we sit down over a great meal. There's more Scrumptious Conversation right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with enlightening ideas to help make every day more delicious. I'm so excited to delve deeper into the idea of milling nutritious flour at home. The Homemade Flour Cookbook, penned by Erin Alderson, has just released a comprehensive guide filled with information on every grain and legume, nut, and seed you can imagine, with instructions on how to easily grind them into Flour right at home. Not only is it more affordable to grind grains at home, but the freshness of the flour will make your recipes taste better than ever. Oh, says Aaron, and while the task may sound daunting. It takes just a few seconds to grind flour at home as she's proven. It's a beautifully unique cookbook and a valuable resource for those looking to eat more whole foods and get back to our roots. Erin is the creator and founder of the blog Naturally Ella, and she joins us live to dish. Welcome, Erin. I'm glad to have you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Okay, talk to us about how you began milling at home because this concept, this trend of getting back to our roots is definitely... Um, getting larger on on a grander scale every day. And while it seems so elementary, I do believe that this is daunting to even great cooks.
1: I had started because I was really looking to get away from processed foods, and I started building up my pantry with all of these basic ingredients like the grains and the legumes and the nuts and seeds. And on one fateful day, I was gifted a grain mill and Mm. decided to do some research on what all I could grind and found out that it was, more than just the wheat that I had been led to believe.
0: And the simplicity of milling, as you speak about, is really that easy? I mean, talk to us about what you need first and foremost, and then um, we'll dish on what you can mill. I think the opportunities, as you say, are endless.
1: Well, um, it... It's kind of dependent on on what you're going for. Uh, I think that like an electric grain mill is great for those wanting to grind the grains. If you're going gluten-free, being able to grind all those different flours at home is really great. And the electric grain mill gets through them pretty fast. I know a lot of the paleo eaters out there love the nut flours. And those can be as simple as uh, whizzing them in a food processor. And so the book kind of covers all of those different aspects and really helps you dive into some of the easier ways to grind flour at home.
0: Okay, so you acquire one piece of equipment or a couple. Maybe it's an electric grain mill, as you talk about. Mm -hmm. Not the most expensive purchase, but one that is a great investment over the long haul. It does not grind nuts and seeds, though. Your food processor can do that. What other nut flours can be processed in the food processor itself?
1: Really any of them, the pistachio, flour, pecans, meal, And I definitely talk a little bit about the difference between meal and flour as well, uh, but a lot of that can be done in the food processor.
0: Define the two if you would, meal versus flour.
1: I go based on whether or not I sift the meal. And so if I, the pecans that have a little bit higher fat content don't make good flour because you don't get a lot of the fine particles. Whereas pistachio and almonds, if you sift the meal, you get kind of that finer flour that's more akin to traditional flour.
0: Okay. And then you talk about a high-powered blender too. Do you mean the Vitamix that we all love for our morning smoothie?
1: Yes. The Vitamix or the Blendtec are both great options and they can grind pretty much anything.
0: Okay. Let's say you set out to make your own flour at home. What are the benefits? Not only health benefits, but if you would inspire us with the baking benefits, the benefits to a recipe per se, the flavor profile?
1: Well, I think that that's one of the most exciting things about grinding flour at home is that it's no longer just kind of a a bystander. Because To me, the traditional all-purpose flour, it's great, but it doesn't have a lot of flavor. And by grinding all of these different grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds at home, you get to really experiment with all of these different flavors and textures that I think can make a meal even better.
0: Let's talk about barley. Uh, I know it's one of your favorite grains. I think it has fabulous flavor. It's Mm -hmm. malty and rich and delicious. And if you plan to grind your own, you suggest to us that we keep them all separate, preferably like in a mason jar with a tight fitting lid, right? Correct. And then what do you make with it?
2: Barley
1: flour, I love kind of that earthy to it, but it also has a little bit of sweetness to it. And uh, one Mm -hmm. of my favorite recipes from the book, which I I make time and again, it's actually my favorite chocolate chip cookie recipe, is actually made with the barley flour.
0: And you really get that sort of depth of flavor as opposed to a traditional all-purpose flour. Definitely. And
1: that's where it's no longer just about the chocolate chips, I think. It becomes more (laughs) about the, the flavor overall of the entire cookie.
0: And can you grind flours in your coffee grinder? I know everyone's thinking that as we're talking about grinders themselves, that's the first thing I go to. I keep a separate grinder for spices and a separate grinder for coffee, of course. Mm -hmm. And I've always used the white bread trick. I'm not a big white bread eater, but I'll keep a wet bread, as I like to call it, around to clean out the grinder itself so that Mm -hmm. the spice grinder stays with cardamom and the coffee grinder stays with espresso. Um, But can Mm -hmm. you use it as a substitute grinder?
1: Yes, definitely. For small batches, it's really great. Um, I usually just Uh, go back and forth between pulsing in the coffee grinder for 10 to 15 seconds like a grain, and then sifting and then returning any of the extra grain pieces back to the coffee grinder.
0: Okay, talk to us about kamut, please.
1: That's another type of ancient wheat, and it has a very earthy, sweet flavor. I hardly use traditional wheat berries anymore because I love the flavor of kamut and the flavor of einkorn as well. They're both kind of up there as two of my favorite non-gluten-free grains.
0: Okay, so kamut falls under the wheat variety. So if you grind it, what do you substitute for in baking?
1: Essentially, it would just be like all-purpose flour. I have a cake in there that's really similar to a cake that I would make with traditional all-purpose flour. So I use it in place of traditional white and wheat flour.
0: Okay, so talk to us about gluten-free grains then. We went from the traditional wheats and some of, as you speak about, the um, ancient wheat that you can grind and use as a substitute for all purpose. But if you're eating or cooking gluten-free, what are your options?
1: There's quite a few, actually, ranging from some of the more well-known, like quinoa, which is pretty big right now, all the way down to ones that maybe might not be as well-known, like teff or sorghum. And the thing that I love about gluten-free grains is that they all come with completely unique flavor profiles that that really pair well with certain uh, recipes.
0: Okay. The thing I love about your gluten-free grains is that I can't wait to make a quinoa flour crusted cauliflower steak. So I love quinoa. I love the grain itself. I love that it has a pop like a caviar Mm -hmm. bead does. I love the flavor of red quinoa, but you grind it dry and then you use it as a coating. It must Mm -hmm. get so crisp and delicious.
1: Yes. And it definitely has that the, the distinct quinoa taste on it too, which I think brings a lot to that cauliflower
0: steak. Do you use a basic breading procedure? So, do you just use it as a coating, or do you incorporate eggs and in a, you know, the proper three part breading procedure? I think I might have
1: cheated a little bit on that one. <laughs> Not necessarily the whole breading procedure, but I do use a, a little bit of binding to get it stuck on the, the cauliflower.
0: And you cut the cauliflower. I talk a lot about cauliflower on this show, uh, like a steak. So it substitutes for the meaty steak craving we all have. And then Mm -hmm. once you've crusted it, it gets pan sautéed and then finished in the oven? Yep. Okay. And then um, leave us with lentils and peas and some of the smaller uh, legume that we know mostly from, you know, soups and braises, let's say.
1: So those flowers actually were kind of my surprise flowers in the book. And they definitely... they're they a little bit less traditional, in fact, in that you can't really bake with them, but they can be really fun in making pastas, like the chickpea flatbread, Um, and they definitely, they still have that, legume taste to them, but not as pungent as you might think. And so I I love them in all sorts of different kinds of dishes.
0: There are so many great ideas in this book. Congratulations to you. I know it was a labor of love. It was. It was a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there are some recipes I can't wait to make a berry cobbler with oat dumplings, a ricotta pancake with fresh berries that you do. Most certainly the quinoa flour crusted cauliflower steak. Can we post that recipe on my website? I'd love to share it. Definitely, yeah. Thank you. Okay, well, we will post it at chefjamie.com where you can learn more about Erin's passion for milling ancient grains and nuts and legumes in her kitchen. You might be so inspired to even buy a grain mill. It's called The Homemade Flour Cookbook, and it's The Home Cook's Guide to Milling Nutritious Flowers and creating delicious recipes. The author Erin Alderson. She is the creator and founder of the blog Naturally Ella, and you can learn more at naturallyella.com. Erin, it was a pleasure. Thank you again for sharing uh, delicious dishes. Oh, thank you for having me. Of course. There's more delicious conversation and inspiring ideas in your radio right after this. Don't go away. Raise your culinary intelligence just by tuning in. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Welcome back. It's been called hooch, white lightning, white whiskey, mountain dew. It goes by many names. But really, what exactly is moonshine? We usually think of bourbon whiskey as the true American spirit. But it is moonshine's tumultuous relationship that has largely become America's Liquor history of sorts, and there's an extraordinary new read out that you have to get your hands on. I will say, if you have a passion for food and wine and spirits, and really getting to know what it is that this food world revolves around, then you need to read the book Moonshine, the cultural history of America's infamous liquor. The clear, unaged, and potent spirit has maintained its appeal through fact and folklore and fiction. And it is definitely rising again to the modern-day craft distilling practices. And I think it's so interesting, this fascinating history that Jamie Joyce is sharing. It is America's centuries-old relationship with Moonshine that she is sharing in the book called Moonshine Just Released. And Jamie Joyce's work has appeared in Savor, Edible Manhattan, uh, the online edition of The Atlantic, and of course in Time Magazine where she is an editor. We're delighted to have her here and live. And I'm so excited to dish on your book, Jamie. Welcome. Oh, great. Thank you. Pleasure being here. Oh, good. Okay. Another Jamie. I love that too. Yeah. Um, me too. This is a very notorious liquor moonshine. Absolutely. And yes. it has an incredible legacy. But if we can take a pause before we go back to its roots, I think it's an extraordinarily timely coup or very well planned on your part mm-hmm. that your book releases. <laughs> Why, thank you. Yes. Well done. <laughs> your book releases at the same time that I can walk into my local grocery store and find mason jars of moonshine two rows above the argentinian malbec
3: yeah moonshine you can get it at walmart you can get it at Publix, at safeway you can get it all over the country costco even carries moonshine now so how about that here's something that's gone from a backwoods beverage to the shelves of costco it's Pretty incredible the trajectory
0: we have. Yeah, definitely. So, talk about, if you would, its history and the fact that it was originally produced in backwoods stills, but that those days are not over. There still is a black market, in fact
3: go back to the Scotch Irish immigrants coming over to what, even before we, this was the United States, the Irish immigrants, everybody coming over with a strong whiskey tradition and bringing their copper pot stills with them, making those copper pot stills out on the farms on the frontier. And at that time, back in the 1700s, we think about when the country was, was very young, in the 1790s, we had something called the Whiskey Rebellion, and we had all of these farmer distillers making their whiskey. Which, again, it was that was the frontier at that time, Western Pennsylvania. And one of the first taxes that was laid in this country was a tax on whiskey, and it was to pay down Revolutionary War debt. And you had people who said, "We don't want to pay a tax." And so what ended up happening was you had what was called the Whiskey Rebellion, and people were rebelling against the tax and fighting with these tax collectors. And so you've got that story, which is so fascinating, which I talk about in the book, and George Washington sending out nearly 13,000 troops to put down this rebellion. And then he goes back to Mount Vernon and starts his own whiskey distillery, making an unaged rye whiskey, You've got that going on at the birth of this nation. And then you've got throughout the 1800s, Irish immigrants in Brooklyn making moonshine, making it in their tenement buildings down by the Brooklyn Navy Yard. So I love that you've got that history in the drink. And it's really people, some people call it bourbon without the barrel, which Mm. I think is just a really cool way to to think about moonshine. I like like that. Yeah, Yeah, definitely.
0: So do you think that the impact of prohibition in a strange and wonderful way, sort of propelled white lightning that, you know, for all of us who can't get our hands on something, we always want it more mm-hmm. that, you know, very human concept.
3: Absolutely. And then around that same time, too, you know, the 20s and, the, and, and then later in the 30s, you've got the Great Depression going on. Mm-hmm. And so many, many families in the South in particular were turning to moonshining or really – sticking with moonshining as a way to support their families, as a way to bring in income. And, of course, with Prohibition, you couldn't get stuff legally, but moonshine was a way to get it. You know, you had bootleggers who were importing liquor from Canada or bringing it up from the Caribbean, but you had people right here at home, very crafty, making that moonshine, making that white whiskey back in the hills and even in cities, too, you know, that was one of the things that I found so fascinating in researching this book, is I had this image of a moonshiner and his moonshine coming just from the south. And that's not true. It was, by and large, a southern thing, but you had people making whiskey in Los Angeles, they were making moonshine in ranch houses in LA. They were making moonshine <laughs> Everywhere. in the Back Bay in Boston. There was a Harvard professor making it and serving it at dances at Harvard. You know, So there's so many people who are doing this illegal hooch.
0: Sure. I think it's interesting, too, that moonshine's history is very much aligned with other American legends or legacies, if you want to call it that, that have had the same tumultuous past. There is an incredible historical tie-in with Moonshine and NASCAR, and I would love for you to touch on that.
3: Absolutely. That is a fascinating story, and I will be honest with you. I, I started out when I wrote this book, not a NASCAR fan. And I became a NASCAR fan after learning about its history. It's really fascinating. You had some of the very early drivers, even pre-NASCAR, who were, this was before the sport was officially, before NASCAR was officially formed. And there's a great story that I tell in the book about a driver named Lloyd C. Yes. And he was a whiskey tripper. He was in northern Georgia. And he would put the whiskey in the back of his car and haul that down to illicit markets in Atlanta. And you have to drive really fast to be a whiskey tripper. You have to know how to work a vehicle and get away from the authorities who might be chasing after you. And so Lloyd C. and many of his contemporaries, they would end up going to tracks and racing just for fun. And then they got involved in legitimate races, and Lloyd C., unfortunately, ended up being killed over a whiskey dispute, and then of course I'm I, I could go on and on about this, Jamie. But <laughs> one thing I will say was that there is, of course, Junior Johnson. Yes. Yeah. Junior Johnson is one of the most well-known NASCAR drivers there is. He started out as a whiskey tripper, hauling moonshine for his dad. Ended up now has a whiskey of his own called Junior Johnson's Midnight Moon, and it's extremely popular. So he came full circle with this moonshine tradition.
0: If you've just tuned in, you're late. This is all about the cultural history of America's infamous liquor. The book is called Moonshine, and it's written by Jamie Joyce. I think it's very interesting you compare it to the sort of slow-moving growth and its contribution to the food world, per se. Yeah. You compare it to small distilleries, the yep. slow food movement, and especially the rise of the two in the Northwest.
3: Yeah. Well, you've got uh, one of the trips, the reporting trips that I did for this trip was out to Seattle, Washington, and they there's a there's Washington Distillers Guild is based there, and they had an event called Proof Washington, and it was their first ever event. And I went there because out of the 40 or so small craft distilleries that were at this event, there were probably five or six of them that were making a white whiskey. They called it white whiskey. They called it moonshine. And so you have this real interest and resurgence with this spirit. One of the reasons that you have that, well, there's multiple reasons, but one of the economic reasons is because when you are a small craft distiller, White whiskey is one way to get a product out the door quickly. You don't have to age it as you do a whiskey. So there's a real incentive to produce a white whiskey. So that's part of the reason you see this resurgence. Then at the same time, we have the moonshiners on the Discovery Channel. People love that show. So there's all these things going on in the culture that have gotten people interested in this spirit.
0: And so much so that we're seeing moonshine-inspired cocktails on restaurant and bar menus across the country. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what you're drinking at home.
3: Oh, gosh. Well, (laughs) recently, I didn't have this one at home, but I was out at a – there's a place in New York City where I'm based called Distilled New York. They're in Tribeca. And they had this drink that they said uh, it was called Sparkle and shine, and it was a cherry moonshine with vanilla bean, vanilla shrub, which is sort of uh, with vinegar. It's it's uh, aged, right? And it's a rhubarb shrub and champagne. And they served it in a flute. <laughs> now, here's a really great way to get women to drink moonshine because a lot of people think moon. They think of moonshine. and think it's really a man's drink. Yeah, hard alcohol. Well, sure. Oh yeah. Well, put it with some champagne and some cherry moonshine. and... Right. You're good to go. And I also had a fantastic drink on one of my reporting trips to, I was in Greenville, South Carolina, and there's a distillery there called Dark Corner Distillery, and you can do a moonshine-making class. Well, after the class, I went to a local restaurant called American Grocery, and they had this fantastic cocktail that was made with, it was a muddled peach, fresh peach and mint, and it was just fantastic,
0: Okay. Well, I would gladly sit down and (laughs) learn more from you over a mixed cocktail of moonshine. I would love that. Anytime. Yes. As my husband Craig, who's in the wine industry, said, everyone in the hotel restaurant management world should read this book. And I agree.
3: Thank you so much. I really appreciate yes, that. Yes, of course.
0: A must read. Uh, a shot of nothing but clear, 100 proof American history. The book is called Moonshine, the cultural history of America's infamous liquor. It is written by Jamie Joyce. She is J-A-I-M-E-J-O-Y-C-E. You can find your copy on Amazon.com and learn more. Thank you for sharing you. your passion once again. Thank you. There's more delicious conversation from the greatest culinary thinkers right here in Your Radio. Be right back. Become the best cook you know just by tuning in. Chef Jamie Gwen in Your Radio as the delicious conversation continues. Molly Chester says that it's time to get back to our roots. And she means literally to get away from processed and industrialized foods and enjoy an energizing, nutrient rich, and satisfying lifestyle. And I agree. Molly began her career in the entertainment industry, but it was her love of food that took her to the Big Apple to attend the Natural Gourmet Institute of Health and Culinary Arts. And following a culinary internship, she moved back to LA and she began chefing and teaching for progressive doctors who prescribed traditional foods techniques to heal their patients. Well, since then, Molly has spoken at Harvard Business School on how to unleash the healing power of food, and most recently, she and her husband began farming a 130-acre beautiful plot of land in Park, California called Apricot Lane Farms. It is an organic and biodynamic farming project that has been featured on Oprah's Soul Sunday and additionally highlighted across the country. She is sharing her passion for traditional foods and nourishing recipes-inspired by our ancestors in her new cookbook release called Back to Butter. And I'm delighted to talk with you, Molly. Welcome.
2: Thank you so much, Jamie. Thanks for having me on.
0: Okay. Talk to us if you would define the traditional food movement, quote unquote, because I think it's full circle. I believe everything comes full circle. Save your genes, right? Uh, It all all comes back to the (laughs) basics.
2: Yes, definitely. Traditional foods is about going back to the societies that were able to maintain health and longevity before modern medicine and conveniences and figuring out what they did right and carrying that forward, combining with technology and things of today to support the techniques that were already working. So it's, it's kind of about remembering.
0: And it's really about going back to the things that we've been told are no longer good for us.
2: They threw kind of a bunch of unfortunate research that was put out that had agendas to it, we have sort of taken a left-hand turn and taken out of our diet a lot of the very things that were maintaining health in these societies. So banished foods like butter and liver and organ meats, things like that that are almost considered gross nowadays are the things that they would give to elderly people and pregnant women and children in order to build strength. So this book kind of reincorporates not only some of those principles, but many more about how to treat grains, nuts, and seeds, things like that, that we have started to hear a little bit more about, but then also some principles that Kind of are totally foreign to us right now.
0: So it really means to me that we need to wrap our mind around a whole new pantry. And I believe butter makes everything better. So just so you know, I've never given it up. Good Um, for you. Yes. But there is definitely a journey, as you call it, back to unrefined fat. So what I'd like to do is talk about your traditional foods pantry the modern food landscape, as you mentioned in the book. When it comes to fats and oils, what do you use the most and what do you keep on hand?
2: With fats and oils, it's about returning animal fats back into the kitchen because it was the time when we replaced things like lard and tallow, even in fast food chains and things like that, with refined vegetable oils. And the reason for it was cost. It's very expensive to use animal products and it's very cheap to use vegetable products. However, whenever you take vegetable oils and put them at a very high cooking temperature, they naturally have a low cooking temperature. So you have to refine them to get them up there. And in the refining, you're denaturing those oils and they instead cause inflammation in our bodies. So I use olive oil for low sautes. Then I go to butter and coconut oil for like a medium saute. And then whenever I get up to high heat, I'm going to use ghee, which is typically used in Indian food and it's butter that's been simmered and the milk fats drop away. So because the milk fats are the things that will burn, it's the oil from the butter and that can be used at a much higher temperature. And then I'll use bacon fat whenever
0: I get up there. Fried chicken. Yes. Oh, bacon, fried chicken, the best. Yes. For those, by the way, that are listening and intrigued, we are getting Back to Our Roots, the traditional foods movement. She is Molly Chester. The book is Back to Butter. And she does have a blog that you speak all about these uh, new movement ideas at organicspark.com. I think it's really amazing to see how far the farmer has come where yeah. the chef has been the rock star for so long on television. We are mm-hmm. getting back to our roots across the country when we appreciate the farming and those that bring us the freshest produce and the beautiful meats that come locally that are raised consciously and right. And there was very interesting information to me in your book, reading about sustainable meat. You say, and I quote, on a very basic level, the quality of the animal literally becomes the quality of us. We truly are what we eat. So a healthy animal means a healthy you and you eat lots of meat.
2: Yes, I do. And I actually was a vegetarian from nine until 27 or eight. And it was having to regain my health because my health declined so much. Here I was in my 20s when you're supposed to be radiantly healthy, and I had less energy and landed myself with polycystic ovarian syndrome and had to crawl back from that. And one of the pieces of the pie was returning to animal foods. And once I realized I don't only like this, but I need this for my body, then it's about finding another way. Okay, if I don't like factory farming, then there must be some other Way because there is a cycle of life here that I am required to maintain my health to eat animals.
0: See, I believe that's, I believe that's a lesson in moderation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We really have to consider each of our own bodies and how we feel, how what we put into our bodies affect us, and then take that premise and use it to build a diet around each and every lifestyle rather than take on the mass market approach to eating because you, you know, you heard it was the right thing to do. I love the recipes in the book as well. I can't wait to make your zucchini soup with corn and pancetta stuffing. Thank
2: you. That's a favorite. Mm. I like that one
0: a lot. I love that you start with coconut oil too. We just returned, Craig and I, from our honeymoon in Hawaii. Uh-oh, and so I'm good. using, thank you, coconut oil for everything, especially like coconut rice. Yes. You find that the flavor really infuses all the way through. And with the subtle sweetness, the natural Natural sweetness of zucchini. I could yeah. see that coconut oil really bringing it out.
2: It is really nice. And with the corn at the end too. Mm,
0: yummy. Can we share that recipe on the website? Yeah, absolutely. Right, thank you. Go for it. Thank I, you. Totally. And I love uh, that you end on a sweet note. There is a cookie that has been a family favorite in your family for a long time, and it's an old fashioned sour cream drop.
2: Yes. those. I remember those from when I was a kid and now they're just slightly darker in color because whenever you switch to unrefined sweeteners then you lose the like crisp white color. Right.
0: I noticed you use powdered honey granules. You can
2: order honey granules from a place called breadbackers. They also nowadays have them in lots of health food stores across the country. Well
0: thank you. We appreciate you inspiring us. I love that you've gone back to your roots and that you're Definitely bringing those along with the ride that might have considered the banished food like eggs and cream and bacon a flavor of the past, but it really is for future generations. Thank you very much, Jamie. It was a real pleasure. It was my pleasure as well. Thank you. The book is called Back to Butter, a traditional foods cookbook written by Molly Chester. And you can learn more on her blog at organicspark.com and find a recipe excerpted at chefjamie.com. So that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. I hope that I satiated your appetite and perfected your palate this Sunday and that you'll tune in every Sunday for more delicious inspiration. Be sure to check out chefjamie.com as well where it's grilling central. I have cool ideas for summer fun, no fuss weeknight grilling recipes, creative cocktails, make-ahead desserts, and more. And don't worry, if you've missed a broadcast of this show you can always find our podcasts on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen I'll leave you with this what I like to call my last bite or my last ounce of gastronomic information my two ingredient three even four ingredient recipes have been quite a hit at the end of this show over the past couple of months so I thought I would continue the trend in fact and share a piece that I was most inspired by on tastingtable.com There was a recent article about Jonathan Waxman. He is the chef proprietor of New York's Barbudo, where it's hard to get a reservation, uh, but the dishes are decadent. And he recently opened in Nashville a restaurant called Adele's. Now, he's very well known for sophisticated Italian fare, but it was his childhood in San Francisco that encouraged his love for Asian cuisine. So his best three ingredient recipe is what he calls his holy trinity of soy, sesame, and vinegar. It's his secret weapon sauce. And he says that it masters beautifully with skirt steak for a pungent marinade. It makes a beautiful dumpling or pot sticker dipping sauce. And he says there are no better mashed potatoes than those with his secret weapon sauce, no butter, no cream, just pure flavor. So how do you make it? Well, you combine one quarter cup of toasted sesame oil, one quarter cup of rice vinegar, and two tablespoons of soy sauce. Combine them all, store them in a plastic squeeze bottle, and use it on everything, he says. I'd love to know what you think. We could have some private culinary conversation. You can always email me at jamie at chefjamie.com, and I'll post the three ingredients and the measurements once again on Facebook and Twitter at Chef Jamie Gwen. So until next Sunday, I thank you for listening. I'll meet you right here for more delicious conversation. Again, to see what's cooking online, visit chefjamie.com. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well. The preceding program has been brought to you by TasteBud Entertainment.